Hey everyone, back for another episode in the archives. Before we get started, if you want to stay up to date with the podcast, receive research on publishing, or even just say hi, you can always follow me on Twitter or add me on LinkedIn. I absolutely love hearing from listeners. And if you are enjoying, please rate and review, or like and subscribe, or share, or whatever it is your listening platform of choice has. Thanks. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. It's no secret that high-flying growth stocks were hammered in 2022, so I thought it would be fun to revisit my conversation with Jason Thompson back in Season 3. Jason is a portfolio manager at O'Neill Global Advisors, where he manages highly concentrated portfolios of growth stocks. Now, Jason is a discretionary PM, which may seem like an unusual guest for a quant podcast, but his approach is so data and process driven, it's really hard to tell the difference. I selected a few questions about his take on growth investing in general, but I'd highly recommend you go back and listen to the original episode for all his thoughts on portfolio construction and risk management as well. Enjoy. Where I want to start, and this is something you mentioned a little bit with the new products idea, and you mentioned a little bit earlier the idea of growth investing in sort of broader themes. When you think about building a portfolio, how much of growth investing to you is in the name in a single security and getting that security call correct versus how much of it is just being in the right theme? Could people build a growth portfolio with all these thematic ETFs that are coming out nowadays? Okay, so I answer that question in two parts, not three, but two. <laughs> we'll keep it short. So yeah, let's look at this unbiasedly. What does the data say? So if you look at the data, our original studies show that about half, so meaning 50% of a stock's move is directly correlated to its industry group. And I'll define that a little bit more clearly or in depth. So I prefer to look at the general sectors and generally a firm does is not the overall sectors. We've been collecting data for a long time, so we're able to parse this in many different ways. One of the interesting ways that we look at this data is that we take the general sectors and we break them down into about 200 different industry groups. So what that allows us to do is simply is just knowing where the strength and where the weakness is occurring. Where is a good, where is a bad at any given moment? And when we study this over the last couple of decades and you know a further look back period, it shows you that, again, half of a stock's move is tied or directly correlated to the industry group. How often do you have to revisit those industry groups? Because it seems to me like almost a new industry can be coming out all the time. So I think the industry groups, now this is where it's going to get fun. I think those industry groups come down to like product cycles in that. I don't think we should think of industry groups as necessarily in terms of like themes. Industry groups, we could think of tech, but what's within tech? Well, we have software. Well, we have software that was originally physical and in terms of like selling seats and then it become software as a service and then platform as a service. So that's how we further break it down. And then what I will say is in terms of answering your question definitively of how to construct a portfolio based off of knowing these metrics is that 
it actually makes it a little bit easier because what that means is generally you don't have to pick the absolute winner in a stock knowing that if you could just land in the right themes or allocate towards the right themes that you'll generally have a higher expected return versus not. And then what we try to do is we try to use a traditional bottom-up fundamental research effort to narrow down those themes to therefore pick some of the best securities. But usually if you could land in some of the best performing industry groups, you will be able to have a higher expected return. So let's talk about some of that picking individual securities aspect of it. Because again, I know in talking to you in the past, this is not a, it is bottom up fundamental, but it is very quant driven from my perspective. And one of the things that really shocked me the last time we got together is we were talking about the characteristics that call the universe down from call it 3000 securities or 7000 securities or whatever you want to call your big wide world. And you said, well, Actually, once we sort of apply our initial screens, it's more like, I think it was like 50 stocks that you can ever really look at, which I thought was really fascinating. So maybe you can talk a little bit about those initial screens and the constraints that you face in trying to deploy capital. And then from there, once you get that universe called down to a pond you can fish in, what are some of the sort of metrics and characteristics you are looking for at any given time and trying to pick a security, you know, what makes a good candidate? So I think in terms of like the listeners right now, this is probably going to be one of the most interesting aspects because this is getting into the skin of the game part of what we do. So if we just use an example of the U.S. domestic markets, we start with the screening process of about 7,000 unique securities. Once we overlay our growth models, it gets narrowed down very significantly, like you mentioned. So let's define some of those metrics. First is that a general rule of thumb, the definition going back to growth is that you want to have about 20% increase in earnings, 20% increase in sales, and a little bit lower than 20% for your margins, like your return on equity. And then you want to see an acceleration in these numbers. Most significantly, it needs to be weighted in the most two recent quarters. We could get into why that is, and then perhaps maybe that's more of a momentum fact versus like a fundamental fact or et cetera. But that's something that we generally look for. And then we look for margin expansion. So just with those factors alone, if you narrow down the database, start from 7,000, any given time period, you probably end up with less than about 100 stocks. But then it gets reduced significantly when we add in liquidity factors. So everyone has different liquidity parameters and risk tolerances that they're able to deal with. I will maybe give an example of what's available in the marketplace and then how I'm able to kind of navigate with it. Because the liquidity aspect, the more I get involved with being a portfolio manager, the more I realize it's one of the most significant factors because you could have a really great idea that you're able to find. It's just, it's very illiquid. It's tough because then you're getting a premium for bearing the liquidity risk that you're not necessarily wanting your portfolio, especially your capital allocators. And if it takes you a long time to put on an exit of position, that creates a lot of other different uh, metrics. So the quarterly aspect, generally, I use a parameter of having a company that trades $100 million a day. So the average daily dollar volume needs to be about $100 million. Now, you could deviate from that if it's kind of like the preferred habitat theory and maybe fixed income. You're going to stay in your preferred habitat, but if you get a premium outside of that, then you will deviate. So I like to think of that of like the $100 million benchmark of what I like to navigate in. So out of the 7,000 unique stocks in the domestic database, about 500 companies trade more than $100 million a day. It's not a lot. If you narrow it down further, about 175 companies trade more than $250 million a day. And then 75 companies generally trade a half a billion and only 25 companies, it's actually 24, trade over a billion dollars a day. I mean, like 
creates another subject. I won't deviate too far, but in terms of looking at proxies of markets and all these different things, it's would you rather look at the Dow or would you rather look at 25 or 30 stocks that trade a billion dollars? That would probably give you a good indication of what the market is doing. So back on track, I use $100 million on a daily average dollar volume and the rule of thumb is really simple. For risk parameters, if you want to be 5% or maybe say a little bit more aggressive, 10% of the average daily dollar volume, that's only $10 million building a position. It's a very small, insignificant amount. And then knowing it might take you 15, 20, 25 days to establish that position, that's kind of where you get these numbers from. It's from a risk framework. Now, outside of that, what's a really interesting one that I know has a lot of edge in it, it's one that I use a lot, is the institutional sponsorship that we talked about. And it's something that doesn't get a lot of talk for whatever reason, but it's something that's very prevalent. So institutional sponsorship, what I mean is, one, how many mutual funds and how many long short funds are in your stock, and then two, the quality of them. So we rate these funds on a ton of different metrics, but basically we know what are good funds, meaning higher returns, what are bad funds, meaning don't produce any returns that don't outperform the market. So generally we know whether the good funds are buying our stock, the higher rated funds, and then to further analyze that, we know typically these set group of long-only mutual funds, if they tend to establish a position and they have a multi-year time horizon and they follow similar growth models in us, and we see through public filings that if they establish a position, that generally that liquidity is on our side. And more often than not, these funds are going to continue to buy. One way to reconfirm this is that if the next quarter updated, they've added to their position. So now all of a sudden we have our fund with money in the stock, a couple of other funds with it. And then now we might have a handful of the really big, large mutual funds on the stock. That helps with the conviction building process because some of these growth names can be volatile. And if you know your stock is down maybe 10 or 15% and a couple of week time frame that, hey, Fidelity Contra Fund has $110 billion in a single growth equity strategy, they're going to step in and allocate to the position because they're just not frankly buying at highs. I want to talk a little bit about, go back to something you mentioned earlier, which was the sectors, the industries, the themes. One of the critiques that often comes up with like very naive value strategies, for example, is that the same metric doesn't apply across different industries. So enterprise value to EBITDA, for example, that's like a cash flow metric that's more capital structure neutral, but can't necessarily be applied across different companies that have different CapEx needs. When you think of applying these different metrics across different industries, do you have to think about reweighting them for particular industries? Like, do you think about, oh, this is a really asset heavy growth industry? This is a really asset light growth industry. How do you think about characterizing that? So, yes, you're going to want to weight them according to the industry that you're in. So, if you're involved or allocating or looking at maybe a tech company, a recent example software company, the 20% growth margins are going to be pretty light. Why? Because almost all of them have like 80% growth margins. Now, the other end of the spectrum, if you're looking at maybe like a telecom provider or a retail company, their margins aren't going to be nearly as high. Their earnings aren't going to be growing nearly as fast just by the dynamics of the market's in. So you need to have a proportional weighting system in place for that. So generally, I mentioned the 20% numbers just to simplify it, but you want to have those in relation to the certain industry group. So the punchline is the more, I guess, risk and growth oriented the industry group is, 
then the higher the benchmark becomes. And then the lower the risk and growth is, the lower the benchmark becomes. So we have a framework to work around, but we use adjustment factors. I want to talk about FANG for a second, because I think that might be one of those cliche anchors of this is growth. This is what I imagine a growth manager does. They just buy FANG stocks all day long. And I know that's not true in talking to you. How do you differentiate growth from just, hey, I'm going to go buy Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google? It goes about what the model is. And just frankly, a lot of those valuations are very, very, very high today. So they're not going to fit those models. So they're not going to be in the portfolios. But what I will say is that Building a portfolio might be, maybe to use an easier example, I won't get into these crazy metaphors, but it's like playing golf. You can't have a perfect round of golf, but you could try really hard to. So building a portfolio, it's not going to be perfect. If you know what is acceptable to take in terms of risk and what is not. Now, if you want to deviate from that, you have to have you know a series of events that leads to that. So for example, let's say you have a 70% growth oriented portfolio that fits exactly towards your models. But based off certain conditions, you notice that these certain groups or these certain stocks, like the FANG group is doing well. Well, if one of those stocks fits into the portfolio in terms of a context, that where you could look at the portfolio holistically and say it still matches the growth portfolio, then I think you're still being true to your mandate and having that total portfolio context where it's still a growth and still fits a growthy model. The reality is, though, if you add in one of those stocks in your portfolio, it throws off a lot of the other metrics. So all of a sudden your beta is higher, your volatility is higher, the valuation metrics are high. So now you need to have something that's counter in that. So you're allocating towards a main that has lower growth, low beta to reduce the volatility in your portfolio. So it sounds good in theory. It's just hard to implement. And I guess the punchline is it's acceptable, but as long as it's fitting into relation of the total portfolio context. I hope you enjoyed this dive into the archives. If you did, leave us a rating or review and share with a friend. It helps us grow and it means the world. Thanks for listening.